Welcome back to Lighting the Pipes Noir, the podcast where I, Josh Taylor, explore that dark, seductive, and groundbreaking era of Hollywood cinema, the era known as film noir. In this episode, I will be reviewing Dark Passage, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. I first saw this film in the early 2000s, in my university days, and I was taken by what I thought was very innovative for the time of which it was released, 47, and that was how the film employed the concept of a continuous first-person point-of-view camera angle. Felt and still feels like a very modern technique, which makes sense because this was a very experimental time in cinema history. Now, this isn't the best example, but some of you might be familiar with a movie called Hardcore Henry. I can't believe I'm referencing this movie, but here I am. It's the movie equivalent of a first-person shooter. came out a few years ago. And so you get that point of view as if you're watching the proceedings through the eyes of the protagonist, complete with a hand, with a pistol, or dual pistols just within the eyeline, taking out baddies as the camera strafes and shakes with the character's movements. For that particular film, it's a novelty, and it's one that wears very quickly. Um, and the writing's not great either, but I'm not reviewing that film. My point is that as I endured that film, it reminded me of Dark Passage. Now, Dark Passage was released in 1947, at a time when the concept of sound in cinema was no more than two decades old. And it was only a few years before that when Greg Toland innovated the deep focus lens that gave us some beautiful shot in Citizen Kane. And while Noir has benefited from such virtuoso camera work and lighting, it was The Lady in the Lake, a Raymond Chandler adaptation of all things, directed and starring one Robert Montgomery that went full ham with this point-of-view concept. But before we go further, I must clarify that Lady in the Lake was not the first instance of subjective camera use. The point-of-view perspective was utilized way before then, uh, particularly with Abel Gonce's 1927 silent epic Napoleon. But for that time, which was also experimental, it was just another tool in the filmmaker's toolbox, more so than a newfangled way of cinematic storytelling. In other words, it didn't really catch on then, and it really didn't catch on at the time of Dark Passage and afterwards either, uh, or of course with Lady in the Lake. So it was an experimental sort of situation that was going to possibly foster something or a trend, but it kind of relegated itself as, as, as more of an experimental form of cinema as opposed to a new trend in standard Hollywood filmmaking. If we're looking at this technique in in The Lady in the Lake, the protagonist in this case, Robert Montgomery as Philip Marlowe, conducts his investigation and we see everything through his eyes for 95% of the film, save a few sequences where Marlowe addresses the camera. Only The Lady in the Lake was a mixed bag. The 1946 box office wasn't anything to write home about, and neither was the story. It's a clear case of style over substance. It's experimentation, but maybe without the art, and more like a gimmick. Or that's how it came off to people, to critics, etc. The only real takeaways was Audrey Totter's critically acclaimed performance of a supporting character who hardly had any, who did not have much of a presence in Chandler's original novel, arguably maybe a red herring character. It's basically the only reason why it's known is because of this innovation of the POV viewpoint in terms of filmmaking and using 95% of the film in that direction. So you could say the moderate success of Montgomery's little experiment, it would be in the back of the mind for producers, producers such as Jerry Wald and Humphrey Bogart. 
Now, I haven't seen the film. I can't really say anything on its quality, but you know, we're here to look at Dark Passage, uh, which the lady in the lake had to walk before Dark Passage could run. And it's, I'm damn sure, even though I haven't seen it, it's probably better than Hardcore Henry. The novel of Dark Passage, from whence the film adaptation came, sounded like Elrond there, was written by David Goodis. In the vein of Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, James N. Kane, and Cornel Woolrich, Goodis wrote several short stories and novels of the mystery-slash-crime-fiction variety. He was born in 1917 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, from a Russian-Jewish background. Despite a high education, he never projected from an ivory tower. He had great empathy for outsiders, people of, of ethnicity, criminals, the poor, and the mentally troubled, and this was reflected in his writing. Like Hammond and Chandler, he wrote for the pulp magazines with names such as Dime Mystery Horror Stories, but never for Black Mask, but of similar sort of titles. He delved into radio serial writing. Something called Hop Hopkins was something he was well known for, and he also wrote for a Superman radio serial as well. He published several short stories and novels, but his first screenplay was for 1942's Destination Unknown. One of his later novels, Shoot the Piano Player, was adapted by legendary French filmmaker Francois Truffaut in 1960. But it was his novel, Dark Passage, in 46, what that was his true breakout after all those years. It was published in six parts in the New York Daily News before being released as a full title in the bookstore. Its format's not important because regardless of what form it came in, it came to the notice of Humphrey Bogart. Bogart was 46 years old when he read Dark Passage. He was already a Hollywood icon by this time. The Maltese Falcon made him a star. But Casablanca made him a legend. He was born in 1899, grew up in well-to-do NYC society. His father was a respected physician, his mother an artist. Both of them, unfortunately, were morphine addicts. He had two sisters. And he struggled in school and in boarding school and found his true calling in the theater. He, he rose from the dregs of the New York theater scene to Broadway, and eventually to Hollywood as a bit contract player for Warner Brothers. This floundered, and he returned to theater, and he earned critical acclaim. In 1935, he co-starred in The Petrified Forest, a play written by Robert Sherwood. Now, the play starred his friend Leslie Howard in the lead hero role, where Bogart played the hoodlum villain. Bogart got a sensational review for his meaty portrayal of the monstrous Duke Manti. The play was a hit, and Jack Warner, co-founder and head of production at Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank, California, gobbled up the rights. They wanted Leslie Howard to star in the adaptation. Howard pushed Bogart to co-star with him, but the studio wanted to give it to Edward G. Robinson, who was a well-known quantity with Warners as a star of such gangster epics as Little Caesar. There was Robinson, Jimmy Cagney, Paul Mooney, George Raft, et al. These were the Warner Brother big players. But Howard set an ultimatum to Jack Warner, either Bogart plays Manti or no deal. Talk about balls. Talk about a Hollywood bromance. Surprisingly, Warner acquiesced. They wouldn't regret it. As Bogart shot his very first scene as Manti, they knew this was something, something new, something exciting. Welcome to the killer with depth. Petrified Forest was a success and Warners locked Bogart into a contract, but he didn't join the ranks of Cagney and the others. He was typecast as a gangster in addition to other small roles. Luckily, he became friends with writer John Huston, and Huston gave Bogart another flexing of his thespian muscles, playing a sympathetic on-the-run gangster in Raoul Walsh's High Sierra. 
which was just the confidence-building career-reviving shove he needed to play Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon. A year after that, Bogart made Casablanca, and the rest is history. In 44, he took on the role of Harry Morgan in Howard Hawke's adaptation of To Have and Have Not. For Bogie's romantic lead, Hawke suggested an ingenue from the Bronx named Betty Joan Persk. Now, it was Hawke's wife, Slim Keith, who discovered Persk gracing the cover of Harper's Bazaar, and knowing her husband had to have and have not on his plate, suggested he give Persk an addition. Legend has it Hawke's instructed his secretary to dig up more information on this beguiling young model, but this was translated into get her to Hollywood pronto, which is what happened. Hawks was immediately charmed by this young Jewish girl with a high-pitched New York accent and offered her a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. The first thing that he did was give her a name change. Betty Persk sounds like a name with pure star power behind it, and that could have easily been known. But Hollywood being Hollywood, Betty Persk had to go, at least on the posters and the billing outside the movie theaters. So Betty became Lauren, but she provided a variation of her mother's name, and so Lauren Bacall was born. Slim Hawks gladly took Bacall under her wing. Posture, deportment, etiquette training was drilled into Bacall, not to mention some vocal training. The latter resulted in the actress's famous low and quite sultry pitch. The soon-to-be superstar Bacall was taller than most actresses of her era, standing at 5 feet and 8 and a half inches. And when she blazed onto screens in 1944 with that famous shimmy and what could only be described as the look... If you've seen To Have and Have Not or The Big Sleep, you know what I'm talking about. Just any instance when Bacall presses her chin to her chest and glares smolderingly at the protagonist slash male audience slash female audience member, whichever way you go, that's the look. Turns out Bacall was very anxious at the time, very nervous during her first screen tests, and she found herself quivering. To counter this, she pressed her chin to her chest and simply looked upwards, hence the look. But then she met Bogey. She was 19 to Bogart's 45, and as weird as that is to say in this modern context, not a single soul on set could deny the palpable sexual chemistry, and they fell for each other, hard, within weeks of the shooting. But no need to mince words, it was an affair. Bogart was married to actress Mayo Meto, and though that marriage was indeed on the rocks, it would capsize and sink once Bogart and Bacall made their first contact. And it really must be love for her to ignore that terrible captain's hat the production fitted Bogart with. See what you want about to have and have not, both the book and the film, because I have from very good authority that it is middling Hemingway, though I never read it. But the adaptation, in my view, seemed to be Hawks trying to give us another Casablanca. Instead, it forged the most iconic couple in Hollywood. To Have and Have Not was later remade by Michael Curtis in 1949 with John Garfield and is, in my opinion, a significantly different experience. But what's important is that this first film adaptation greatly enriched Bogart's career and his life. It led to The Big Sleep, where in its post-production, Warner's was already looking for its next Bogie Bacall vehicle. The newlywed Bogart read Dark Passage and, liking what he read, passed it on to producer Jerry Wald. Bogart emphasized his interest in playing an innocent man accused of a crime he did not commit. The premise of Goodis's Dark Passage is intriguing, but digestible for the thriller audiences. 
Vincent Perry is accused of murdering his wife, but he didn't. He escapes from prison, is taken in by a woman who believes his story. He then sets out to exonerate himself, first by receiving plastic surgery to doff his previous identity and then tracking down those responsible. Minus the surgery part, doesn't it sound like the plot to the television series and feature film The Fugitive? Well, David Goodis would agree with you there as he spent his last years of his life fighting for his due from United Artists TV and ABC Television. It was resolved posthumously, alas, with a settlement of $12,000 to his estate in 1978. Was justice done? Hard to say. But let's go back to Dark Passage and Bogart's interest in getting it made. Naturally, Bogart suggested that Bacall play the role of the only woman that believes in him. But I should say that Bacall's casting wasn't a deal-breaker. Now, I'm quoting here Bogart, which is a biography by A.M. Sperber and Eric Lax, and this is page 333, uh, which discusses the making of Dark Passage. He proposed Bacall for roles that he thought suitable, but never made his consent conditional on the employment of his wife. As for Jerry Wald, he had established himself at Warner Brothers in films like Across the Pacific, which starred Bogart and Mary Astor, a little Maltese Falcon reunion. And notably for the noir genre, he produced Mildred Pierce. He agreed Dark Passage would be a great project and cooked up a deal with Goodis to purchase the rights for 25 grand. Goodis accepted. The writing and directing would fall to veteran Delmer Daves. Now, Daves was a former screenwriter and co-wrote the adaptation of The Petrified Forest, but he was best known for the westerns he made in the 50s, like the original 310 to Yuma and Broken Arrow. Daves went to Stanford for law, but he had one of those life choices where he found film his true calling and aimed for the film industry. He began as a prop boy, learning all the tricks of the trade, moving up through the ranks until he was a technical advisor on a nearly dozen films. One of these films was for MGM, who gave him a go at touching up screenplays in the writer's bullpen. His first script was So This College in 1929, an early sound comedy. Eventually, he found himself penning scripts for Warner Brothers, one of which was the adaptation of The Petrified Forest, as well as the movie Love Affair. During World War II, he got the director's job, finally, albeit making propaganda war films for Warner Brothers, films like Destination Tokyo, The Very Thought of You, and Pride of the Marines. Post-war, he directed The Red House and followed up that film with Dark Passage. So Wald got someone that knew his craft. Bacall was, of course, initially considered for the role, despite that Wald and Daves were looking at Swedish redhead newcomer Vivica Linfors, and Bogart was content to accept the new girl's casting over Bacall's, but whatever the pretenses established, Bacall was cast in the role of Good Samaritan slash love interest Irene Jansen to Bogart's Vincent Perry. Walden Daves hired Sidney Hickox as DOP, a natural choice as he lends both to Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep. Editing would be done by David Weistart, known for his work previously on Mildred Pierce and years later for A Streetcar Named Desire. He would later move from the editing suite to become producer in 1952, giving life to Rebel Without a Cause, starring James Dean. Now, with Bogart established as Perry, uh, Bacall as Irene, Veteran character actress in stage, radio, and film, Agnes Moorhead was cast as Madge Raft. You might recall her American Gothic-esque visage as the mother of Charles Foster Kane in Citizen Kane, or as Eudora uh, in the 60s sitcom Bewitched. Rounding out the cast was Bruce Bennett as Irene Suter Bob, Tom DeAndrea as Sam the Cabbie, who plays a pivotal role, Clifton Young as Baker, the passing motorist, and Rory Mallison as Perry's friend George Felsinger. 
Music was assigned to the formidable Franz Waxman. With Lady in the Lake and its innovative style at the back of their minds, Wald and Dave's developed Dark Passage's visual aesthetic with cinematographer Hickox. Even with its star power already selling the film, Wald and Dave's wanted to do something very different with Dark Passage. Unlike Lady in the Lake, they would not devote all the action to point-of-view shots. Instead, they would have sequences with Bogart's face obscured by shadow or shot over his shoulder where we only see the back of his head. Or in one sequence where after his plastic surgery, his face is entirely covered in bandages. Of this, Bogart quipped, I can just hear Jack Warner scream, he's paying me all this money to make the picture and nobody will see me until it's a third over. The film is shot on location in San Francisco. To achieve the feeling of the point of view in terms of the main character moving around, running, jumping, etc., innovations were made with handheld technology to match the motions of the unseen protagonist. During the shoot, Bogart, or more appropriately, the, the Bogarts, took up a suite at the Mark Hopkins Hotel. The streamlined modern Malick building on Telegraph Hill stood for Irene Jansen's apartment, both interior and exterior. In fact, apartment number 10 of that building was used as Irene Jansen's apartment. Even to this day, residents of a number 10 place a cutout of Bogey in the window. Other famous San Francisco light locations include the Filbert Steps and the cable car system. And of course, the Golden Gate Bridge. Frisco became a media circus. During the filming of Perry being smuggled across the Golden Gate Bridge, the bridge was effectively barricaded by 15,000 fans. Overall, the shoot went swimmingly, despite rain and fog and the constant interruption of fans clamoring for autographs, though Bogart's hair did start falling out in clumps during the production. In fact, in her autobiography, Bacall confirms Bogart experienced alopecia areata, essentially bald spots, and these were placated by hormone treatments. Even so, near the end of the shooting schedule, he was wearing a full wig. Beyond that, there wasn't much that plagued the production of Dark Passage. Uh, the film cost $1.6 million in today's money and earned $3.4 million at the box office. It was a success, but not a bona fide hit. Critically, the reception was mixed. Bosley Crowther was particularly harsh on Bogart, intimating that after the reveal of his face, the actor is too reserved, lacking the spirit of previous roles. Crowther, however, praises Bacall's performance as a sharp-eyed, knows-what-she-wants girl. Aesthetically, he found the production brings San Francisco to life, but backhandedly asserts that if you're bored with the story, well, at least it's pretty to look at. I paraphrase Mr. Crowther here, but you get the picture. Other critics felt the same way. Interestingly enough, it is listed 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. So take that as you will. And that's the story of the production behind Dark Passage. But before I get into the review, I have a digestible plot summary for you. If you haven't seen Dark Passage yet, stop this podcast right now and go watch it and come back for the summary and review, because beyond this point, there be spoilers. Vincent Perry is serving a life sentence at San Quentin Prison for the murder of his wife. The movie begins with his escape. He accomplishes this by smuggling himself out in what looks like an oil drum placed in the back of a truck. At an opportune moment, he rolls the barrel off the back of the truck with him inside. Of course, he survives a tumble and sheds his prisoner tunic. 
Got to keep a low profile, especially when patrol cars zoom from the overpass above and sirens blurred loudly in the distance. He manages to hitchhike a ride onto a passing jalopy. No, he's not from Riverdale. That's an Archie joke. But the driver has too many questions for Perry and is growing suspicious. Just perhaps a man in an only a undershirt, trousers, and wet shoes and feet is suspicious? A blast from the car radio announces his escape with a complete physical description. The jalopy slows to a halt as the driver reaches his epiphany about his sullen passenger. It's too late. Vincent knocks him cold. He drags the driver's limp but only unconscious body into the underbrush. Luckily, Lauren Bacall shows up in a station wagon. She hides him under a tarp with her fresh oil paintings in the back of the wagon. Out of options, Perry goes along with it. Because plot. And Bacall. Charms and wits with a dash of luck allow them to get past the police checkpoints and onto the Golden Gate Bridge. Bacall, or more appropriately, Irene Jansen, as we soon learn, sneaks Vincent into her apartment. Here he can shower, shave, clean up. She goes out to get him some new clothes. He puts on some music. Why? Well, despite plot, maybe to just relax before his shower? Or maybe he hasn't heard good music for quite some time, being in prison and all. What matters is that during his brief interval, Irene has a visitor. A visitor with a voice that Vincent fairly recognizes. It's a woman, and she can hear the music blaring. She calls for Irene, knowing someone is in the apartment. Vincent can see her through the peephole. It's Madge. Who is that, you ask? Don't worry. You'll know soon enough. He tells her to go away. She does. He heads upstairs to Irene's room and peers through the blinds to see Madge departing, catching her looking back at the apartment from the street. When she is gone, Perry takes his shower. Refreshed, clad only in a towel, and this we know, because we see through Vincent's own point of view, him turning off the shower and grabbing said towel, he rather inappropriately searches the drawers of her dresser and falls upon a scrapbook. There are clippings of his own case, but what draws his attention is of a clipping about Irene's father. Irene walks in at this moment, understandably perturbed about this invasion of privacy, but she shrugs it off, making some comments about his towel-clad only form and giving him his clothes. Downstairs, she reveals her father went to jail for the murder of her stepmother, which she believes he didn't do. Her father was an a-demand architect before his conviction, so she is well off thanks to the inheritance, which for the audience explains the swanky apartment for someone who is a single woman who paints for a living. Money doesn't take away the pain of losing her father, however, she shows him another one of his clippings where she wrote into the San Francisco record pleading that he, Vincent Perry, was exposed to a harsh injustice. She is referring to the fact that the case against him was built on the testimony of Madge Raft, the same Madge who came by earlier today. According to the testimony, Madge found Vincent's wife bludgeoned with an ashtray and her last words accused Perry of her murder. But Irene believes there wasn't enough evidence to convict. The police acted unprofessionally, the usual circumstances. The two have a moonlit dinner on the balcony, very low profile, which after some sparks flying, I mean it's Bogey and Pakal, Vincent accepts the money she offers him, thanks her for the new threads and her help. He departs in a taxi, leaving the impression that he is going to exonerate himself somehow on his own. As it turns out, getting that taxi was the first step in that direction. The driver, Sammy, is your typical chatty cabbie. Vincent doesn't want to talk, but lets Sammy talk. Sammy's goldfish story is pretty funny, but all humorous pretense is dropped when Sammy clocks him for Vincent Perry, his likeness being all over the radio and newspapers, which is slightly amusing considering Perry is framed in the backseat of the cab, with Sammy in the foreground and Perry's face completely masked by the shadows. What about faces? It's funny. From faces, I can tell what people think, what they do, sometimes even who they are. Yeah. Sure, now you, for instance, you're a guy with plenty of trouble. I don't have a trouble in the world. Don't tell me, buddy. I know. Yeah, she gave you plenty of trouble, that dame. So you slugged her. Did you really bump your wife off? 
No, I didn't. I don't figure it that way. I figure you slugged her with that ashtray because she made life miserable for you. I know how it is. I live with my sister and her husband. Now, they get along fine. So fine that one day he threw a bread knife at her. She ducked. That's the way it goes. But Sammy is surprisingly chill. He understands that bad things happen between men and women. All right, maybe not that chill, despite this being in 1947. Getting back to things, Sammy sympathizes with Vincent and offers to set him up with the plastic surgeon. Lots of good Samaritans in San Francisco. While Sammy arranges for the appointment, his incentive being good, kind-hearted nature and a few hundred Benjamin Franklins. Vincent instructs to be dropped off at an old friend's place just 10 blocks from the surgeon's office. Vincent's friend, George Felsinger, is an aging bachelor and musician, a trumpeter to be precise. He warmly invites Vincent into his place. Vincent says he didn't kill his wife. George believes him and speaks harshly of Madge and fondly of Irene, whom he saw at the trial. We learn Vincent and his wife's marriage was on the rocks and that Madge was obsessed with Vincent, who rejected his advances. Vincent asks George if he can stay with him for the next week while he recovers from his imminent plastic surgery. George is okay with this. Vincent makes it to his appointment, where Sammy is waiting to introduce him to the good doctor, Walter Coley. Coley all but admits that he is a quack, but he is apparently a Mozart with a scalpel. Vincent puts the money on the surgical tray as instructed and sits back in the operating chair. What follows is a surrealist nightmare of dissolved, split screens, very trippy, as the anesthetic takes over completely. The procedure is done, aside from a shot or two from behind as his face obscured by noirish lighting. We finally get a view of Bogart as Perry, albeit with his face wrapped in bandages. Perry absorbs Coley's instructions and heads back to George's apartment. He finds George dead. His own trumpet was used to brash his brains in. This killer certainly has an M.O. Wisely, he flees the scene. He treks all the way uptown, all the way up Telegraph Hill. Upon reaching the entrance at the top of the stairs, he recognizes a certain jalopy. Panichini makes his way across the street to Irene's apartment and waits for her to come home. She brings him back to the apartment and proceeds to nurse on him, following Coley's instructions to the T. Whilst he is recovering, Irene's boyfriend, who called earlier in the film, a detail only really important to mention until now, calls on her again. She can't put him off anymore because he'll only get suspicious. But Vincent can hide in her room upstairs. I guess Bob won't be getting to third base that night. The situation gets further complicated when Madge Rath shows up. She is fussy and bossy, walking around Irene's apartment as if she owns it. She is scared Vincent is coming after her, especially now that the police are tying him to George's murder. Bob shows up. Turns out he was Madge's ex. It's awkward. Bob seems alright, he's into Irene, but he feels Vincent got a raw deal. Also, he, does, he dislikes Madge, so we can't help but like him. Which is why it's awkward when Irene breaks it off with him in front of Madge. He is nothing less than a gentleman about it, and he gets Madge out of the apartment to boot. Be like Bob. The week passes and the bandages come off. Turns out Vincent Perry is played by none other than Humphrey Bogart. He thanks Irene once again for everything that he's done. The two share a tender moment, or more specifically, a kiss. She wants him to give up clearing his name and run away with her. But he can't let her be mixed up with all this. With a new face, he needs to move on and find out who framed him. He takes another cab who drops him off downtown at a nondescript diner. His lack of knowledge of the horse racing pricks up the ears of a diner who just happens to be a plainsclothesman. After all the deus ex machina he's encountered so far, the cosmic balance starts to tip in the other direction. He is interrogated in the diner, and he can't produce any ID, so he is walked out on the street, but makes a run for it at a crosswalk in front of a moving car. He makes it to a seedy hotel where he books a room under Irene's terrible alias, Alan Linnell. There's a knock on the door. 
It's a man in the jalopy brandishing a pistol. His name is Baker, and he is not so torn up about being pummeled as it turns out, but he is keen on extorting Vincent and Irene for $60,000. It's time to see Irene, I guess. Vincent is driving at gunpoint, yet convinces Baker the back road to Irene's apartment is the safest bet from the cops. The road leads up to a secluded spot under the Golden Gate Bridge, where Vincent disarms Baker and the two have it out along the cliffs. Baker loses the fight, and through Vincent's questioning with a pistol in his face, Baker admits he manages to catch Irene's plates and trace the station wagon back to her. He also admits he saw a woman following his cab to George's apartment. Madge. Baker makes another reach for the gun, but plummets over the cliff to his death. Aware that Madge will not have recognized him with his new visage, Vincent confronts Madge at her apartment. On pretense of being a gentleman caller, man, this is the 1940s, isn't it? She lets him in and coaxes all the details he needs to confirm his suspicions that she did indeed kill his wife. He reveals to her who he really is, and she admits to killing his wife and George, too. If she can't have him, no one can, and there is nothing he can do about it. Furious, Vincent rounds on her, coercing her to confess, but she pushes him off and throws the curtain of her apartment window over her to get away from him in the struggle, and crashes through the window. With a blood-curdling scream that, could will that, could that would make Willem proud, she falls to her death hundreds of feet below. As the crowds congeal around her body, the police, conveniently nearby, swarm the apartment. Vincent descends the building via the fire escape all the way down to the back alley. With Madge dead, there is no hope of exonerating himself. With the money he still has left, he makes it to the bus station and buys a ticket out of town. He calls Irene from the station, letting him know where he is going. Whilst he does this, a detective questions the bus station ticket office but tucked inside the phone booth, Vincent is out of that detective's eyeline. The bus arrives and Vincent boards and makes his way out of San Francisco to freedom. Freedom and happiness, as it turns out. Hundreds of kilometers south of the equator, Vincent sits oblivious to a floor show at a beach bar somewhere in Peru. But the music suddenly changes. It's the swing piece he first heard in Irene's apartment. Turning his head, he sees Irene on the other side of the dance floor, smiling. The two embrace and the movie ends. I hope you enjoyed my summary of Dark Passage as much as I did writing it. Keep in mind I make no apologies for spoiling the movie. I warned you. That said, on with the review. For those not familiar with my rating system, it is divided into three categories. Plot, acting, and atmosphere. Each are out of five points for a total of 15 points. Plot is story, writing, pacing, how these elements are conveyed in camera work and editing. Acting speaks for itself, the caliber of the talent involved and how it serves the story. Atmosphere is how well the movie defines the noir aesthetic and how it conveys the moods and themes through camera work, lighting, sound design, music, production design, etc. So now that you know the rules, it's time to review Dark Passage. Plot. It's straightforward, but it's a slow burn, and that's not a detriment, at least in the first two-thirds of the film, due to the obvious fact that we haven't seen Humphrey Bogart's face yet. Vincent Perry is known to us through the point-of-view camera angles, the shots from behind, or his face obscured by shadow, for example, when he's in the back of the cab. This creates a frisson of suspense for the audience. We are to see Bogie's face, but at the same time, we are emphasizing with his character and investing in the story emotionally because this allows us to feel his anxiety and desperation, the mindscape of an innocent 
innocent man on the run. It ratchets up the tension, to use a cliché. Once the bandages are removed and we are graced with Bogart's visage, however, the film begins to lose its uniqueness. Perry's decision to leave Irene and exonerate himself leads to a ham-fisted diner sequence where the police detective patron is a little too observant, the extortion slash kidnap of Perry by Baker, well justified given the introduction of Baker at the beginning of the film and the reappearance of the jalopy midway through the picture, it still feels cliche and its only purpose is to lead Perry directly to Madge. And while that scene is brimming with tension, it is ultimately anticlimactic. And yet, even that works. I, I can't help but love the originality of the hero being unable to clear his name and yet still get that happy ending when he and Irene rendezvous in Peru. It's a subversion of the typical climax where the protagonist is exonerated in the public eye and gets the girl. Here, it's a hero still on the run in the perspective of the police and public who assume you know, he still killed his wife and escaped from prison. At least Perry gets the satisfaction of avenging his wife by confronting Madge, obtaining the truth of his own knowledge and private guilt about the circumstances of his wife's death. But he doesn't get the satisfaction of justice done on a public level. When he altered his face, he effectively adopted the identity of Alan Linnell and started a new life with Irene in the end. Despite this shakeup of traditional Hollywood narrative, the writing does rely on too many coincidences and what can be debatably called deus ex machinas. Irene just happens to be painting in the hills near San Quentin when Vincent escapes. Baker happens to get the license plates of Irene's car, recovering consciousness just in time after being pummeled by Vincent minutes before. While Irene's father's dying in prison for a crime he didn't commit gives her agency to support Vincent Perry, a complete stranger, it is at the trial where she meets Bob and Madge. Bob happens to be Madge's ex, and Bob and Irene are dating on and off at the time Vincent escapes. It's logical that these people would know each other, but still suspension of belief is tested here. We have the nicest cabbie in San Francisco, introducing Vincent to an underground plastic surgeon instead of turning him in the moment he recognized him. So these details stretch plausibility to me, but if we look at the story as a whole, everything fits together despite several pillars of that foundation being a little rocky. Not enough to collapse, but enough to teeter in the last third of the film when the narrative drops the point of view perspective and despite that twist of the protagonist unable to prove his innocence, retreats into banality. Vincent Perry doesn't have a great arc. He escapes from prison and an innocent man. He escapes to Peru, an innocent man. He's just lucky to have a partner to start his life over with. At least Irene Jansen in some way avenges her dead father by successfully helping Vincent. Bob, the boyfriend, was refreshing. Uh, Delmer Daves doesn't make him a jerk or a heel who ignorantly trashes Vincent Perry. He's actually on his side and dislikes Madge. Probably my favorite character. And yet... Despite its conventional final scene, the concept of justice not completely satisfied is so cynical that it's point-blank noir. That makes the plot slightly more than a passing grade for me in the end. So I give it three points out of five for the plot. Acting. Kudos to Bogart for his body language in the first half of the film, not to mention his dialogues with Bacall, with Sam the cabbie's actor and Dr. Coley's actor. But the moment those bandages come off, we get Bogey on autopilot. He's sufficient to get the job done, and I particularly like the scene with the cop in the diner. Bogart plays Perry as a persecuted man, sheepish, aloof, but not as a tough guy as we've seen him in other roles. Though she's paired with her husband yet again, Dark Passage allows Bacall to stand on her own. Unlike the have and have not and the big sleep, Bacall holds the first half of the film up because Vincent is the camera. He really doesn't need to be there for us to fall in love with Irene. 
We feel sympathy because she wants to help Vincent as to what happened to her father. Her chemistry with Bogart or, or whoever is sitting there is always palpable. But I found myself fall under Irene's spell, her charms, if you will. Bacall isn't overshadowed by the bogey-Bacall dynamic. Her Irene is her own character with her own agency. She makes a choice to support Vincent, and we believe it because Bacall sells it, showing us that this constructed star persona was also very talented on her own, with or without her famous co-star slash off-screen husband. The real MVP of Dark Passage, though, is Agnes Moorhead as Madge Raft. She is loathsome in her violent obsession over Vincent, but she never comes off as an annoying shrew archetype. She's approaching middle age with a distinct look that did not match the traditional Hollywood beauty, but she commands every scene that she's in. I give her more props to Bacall for holding her scenes with Moorhead just for forcing Bacall to elevate her own performance. When Irene rolls her eyes at Madge, it feels like a supreme act of defiance. With Moorhead, we feel Madge's desperation when she is scared Vincent is coming for her. And we feel her righteous anger and psychopathy when she tells Vincent he could never escape from her. The classic, if I can't have you, no one will. As much as I dislike the latent misogyny, Madge is a character you love to hate. An interesting twist on the femme fatale, a femme fatale that is not seductive and compensates for her inability to be alluring by destroying what she can't have. Honorable mentions go to Tom D'Andrea as Sam the Cabbie and Houseley Stevenson as the plastic surgeon Dr. Coley. There was an appropriate creepiness and zealousness to his underground surgeon, with an older avuncular affability at the same time. So that pretty much wraps up the acting. And even though we didn't get Bogey at his best, overall acting was solid across the board, with a ferocious performance from Agnes Moorhead and Lauren Bacall ably holding her own. So, four out of five for the acting. Now, I've mentioned the point of view subjective camera more than once in this episode, but how that style and, and the other aesthetics of noir was fused together in this production is remarkable. We get the chiaroscuro lighting, the low-key lighting attributed to film noir. Hickox was a virtuoso with not just the handheld camera, but with the illumination as well, the way he wields shadow purposefully and stylistically in this film. Working its gimmick and its requisite noir visual iconography is just masterful, and yet it works as a beautiful blend of both. How he honed the handheld camera so that it moves fluidly with the protagonist, the key factor in conveying that needed tension for the narrative, brilliant. Franz Waxman's score thrums subtly underneath. Nothing stand out, but palpably carries the mood because outside of some sequences, what's compelling about Dark Passage is the use of diegetic sound, the hustle and bustle of San Francisco, the wail of police sirens, adding to the trapped feeling we get, the clang of the streetcars, throw in some surreal dream sequences when Perry goes under during his procedure, pushing his anxieties in a subconscious way. The on-location shooting also assisted the mood of the picture by grounding it in reality. Combined with the through-your-eyes view viewpoint through the camera lens, it feels as if Vincent Perry runs from prison to prison. San Quentin, San Francisco, Irene's apartment, walking 10 blocks at night to get to the appointment. We get that feeling of desperation and helplessness driven home to us through the clever techniques of Dave's and Hickox, and how it blends with filming in a real locale over a studio soundstage. So four and a half out of five points is my mark for atmosphere. So the final tally is three out of five points for plot, four out of five points for acting, and four and a half out of five points for atmosphere. That gives Dark Passage 11 and a half out of 15 points. In the end, Dark Passage is an interesting experimentation 
Daves and Wald took a concept that the Lady in Lake pushed as a marketing gimmick and utilized it as a tool in elevating the storytelling. Despite its lagging parts and a few instances of plot convenience and a muted Bogart, it delivers a conventional yarn in an unconventional fashion. I hope you enjoy this exploration of Dark Passage. If you want more on the life of Humphrey Bogart and the early history of Warner Brothers, please check out the biography by A.M. Sperber and Eric Lacks. It's quite a read. Dark Passage is available on DVD and Blu-ray from Amazon, so if you haven't added that to your Noire collection, please do. It's decently priced, uh, but if you want to hear more from me, uh, check out my previous episodes of LTP Noire, as well as our regular show, Lighting the Pipes, where me and Scott dig into the mystery novel. We also have a James Bond podcast, Bond by Numbers, with our friend Jeff Chapman. But now it's time to peruse my noir library and choose my next selection. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to comment on pipes underscore pod or lighting the pipes Instagram. But that's it for now. I'm Josh Taylor. Lighting the pipes noir will return. <laughs>